Good morning to everyone online. Good morning to Pastor Sean and everybody at Farmington Hills. Hope you guys are doing well over there. Well, as you've already heard, this morning's topic is going to be about sexual abuse, sexual exploitation of various kinds, including pornography and human trafficking. But before we dive into this, and before we look at King Solomon's story, I just want to speak to those who may have experienced such abuse. I just want to say I want to handle this morning's text in a delicate way because your story matters to God. You matter to God and your story matters to God. And he sees you and he's for you. Before we go any further, let's go before our king and pray. Father God, we come to you in your son Jesus' name. God, thanking you for your word. God, I pray that you would move me out of the way. I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase and be made much of in the lives of your people. God, challenge us where we need to be challenged. Confront us where we need to be confronted and encourage us where we need to be encouraged. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray together. Amen. Her name is Tara, and her story is real. With her permission, here are some things that she courageously revealed about her story. My first memory in life was when I was four years old and I was being sexually assaulted. By the time I was 18, I had been hurt by eight people on many occasions. I can't remember a time in my life when I wasn't hurting or being hurt. When I was trafficked, it, was, it wasn't like a violent kidnapping. The man was nice to me. His line was, you should do these things for me because I'm taking care of you. No one had ever cared for me. Why wouldn't I be grateful? He had me work in sex clubs he owned where I was used, he filmed me without knowledge. The very first time he filmed me, I wondered, how can I get through this? Somehow, I did get through it. I didn't get angry about all of this. Why would I? Those feelings would have required me to be human and worthy of being treated well. No one ever saw me as having potential or value. No one ever saw me as a person at all. Tara, you are human, made in the image of God with tremendous value. And that value should have never been violated and should never be violated because you are God's daughter made in his image. See, the sex industry takes someone made in the image of God and reduces them to something to be used for human glory. That, that industry takes someone 
made in the image of God, someone who's made for God's glory, and reduces them to something made for human glory. As we talk about human sex trafficking, that gross industry, it, it degrades and devalues human dignity. The pornography, the pornography industry degrades and devalues the human dignity. And I think it's safe to say that in our world, we have a porn issue in our world. We have a porn problem. But we have a porn problem because we first have a human dignity problem. We have a porn problem, but we only have a porn problem because we first and primarily have a human dignity problem. You may say, Terrence, is, that, is it that serious? I mean, come on, is, is it that serious? Do we really have a problem? Look at these stats with me, will you? The following percentages of men said that they view pornography at least once a month. 79% of men ages 18 to 30 view pornography at least once a month. That's 67% for men ages 31 through 49. And 49% of men between the ages of 50 and 68. But it's not just in men, it says the percentages of women that say they view pornography at least once a month, 76% of women ages 18 to 30, 16% of women ages 31 to 49 view pornography at least once a month, and 4% of women between the ages of 50 and 68. I think we have a problem. 90% of teens and 96% of young adults are either encouraging, accepting, or neutral when they talk about porn with their friends, 90 to 96%. 63% of adult men have looked at pornography at least one time while at work in the past three months. And 38% have done so more than once. 36% of adult women have looked at pornography at least one time while at work in the past three months. 13% have done so more than once. And this, I, I, when I came across this statistic, I did not want this statistic to be true. I fact-checked it against different sources, but this is true. The largest group viewing online pornography is ages 12 to 17. We have a problem. We have a pornography problem, and we have that problem primarily because we first have a human dignity problem. See, when human dignity is compromised, all sorts of evil follows. There, there are no limits to the evil that follows when human dignity is compromised, when I am convinced that another person is not another person, that they are not human, that they don't have value, or maybe they didn't even come from God, when I, when, when I am convinced of that in my mind, 
there are no limits to the evil that can follow. Porn is the most concerning thing, and one scholar puts it this way, porn is the most concerning thing to psychological health that I know of existing today. The internet is a perfect drug delivery system because you are anonymous, aroused, and having role models for these behaviors. To have drugs pumped into your house 24-7 and free, and children know how to use it better than grown-ups. It's a perfect delivery system if we want to have a whole generation of young addicts who will never have the drug out of their mind. We have a problem. We have a porn problem, but we have a porn problem because we have a human dignity problem. And when human dignity is compromised, there are no limits, no limits to the evil that will follow. That's the real world. That's the world that we're living in. July 30th, 2023, 11.05 a.m. That is the world that we're living in. As we come to our text, we're going to see Solomon ruling in a way that also compromised human dignity. Now, it might seem like we've been picking on Solomon in this series, but the reality is Solomon lived a very complex life. As we look at 1 Kings and Solomon's story, we see great wisdom. We've seen some of that. He exercised great wisdom. But we also see great foolishness and folly. And in, and in Solomon, we see this this contradiction of this person who's trying to follow God, but they're also doing some things that very much go against God's will for their life. As we look at Solomon's story, and, the, and particularly as we look at the kingdom of Israel under Solomon's leadership, they're experiencing great economic prosperity. They are well, they are well aligned politically, but they are compromised morally. Let's look at 1 Kings and Solomon's story. It says, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. It says he had many foreign wives. In the book of Deuteronomy, God said that the king should not take many wives for himself. Solomon was the king, and he has taken many wives for himself. He's directly went against God's plan for his life as a king. Why, why shouldn't the king have many wives? The king was to be devoted to God as he led the people. If he has many wives, he's going to be divided in his loyalty. He's going to be divided in his devotions. And as we look at Solomon's story, that's what we're going to see. He's divided in his heart. He's divided in his devotions. He's divided in his loyalties. And what's going to follow Solomon is going to be a divided kingdom eventually. Eventually, the kingdom of Israel is going to split after being under the leadership of a king that was so divided. Let's, let's continue to, to look at this. Solomon's number of wives said less about his sexual appetite than it did about his appetite for power 
and his lack of faith in God. On the surface, it might look like Solomon had all of these wives for pleasure or sexual companionship. That's a part of the story, but that's not the complete story. So why so many wives? Why hundreds of wives? Why, why, why would you do that? Let's look. Power, protection, prestige, and pleasure. Let's, let me break this down. So Solomon would marry the daughters of foreign kings. His 700 wives were of royal descent. He was marrying princesses. And here's Solomon's strategy. If I marry the princess, I will get in good with the king and I will expand my territory and build a political alliance with that nation. Example, he marries Pharaoh's daughter. Now, if you're in Israel, you know a thing or two about Pharaoh, you know a thing or two about Egypt. This is the guy that God rescued you from. Big deal, part of the Red Sea. Didn't want you dependent on Egypt. Didn't want you dependent on Pharaoh. Solomon says, well, I'm gonna marry Pharaoh's daughter. And what does, what does Pharaoh give Solomon? When, Pharaoh, when, when, when Solomon married Pharaoh's daughter, Pharaoh gave Solomon an entire city named Gezer. He gave Solomon an entire city and he killed off some of Solomon's enemies and built a, a political alliance with Egypt. Now Israel is relying upon Egypt again. But Solomon has built this political bridge and he did it over and over again. That's why the text says beyond Pharaoh's daughter. So he went and married another princess got more land, went, went, married another princess and built a political bridge with her father. And this strategy seemed to be working. It was benefiting Israel economically, but all along, morally and spiritually, Solomon was eroding and Israel was eroding all along with him. He did all of this because he didn't trust God to be his protector. He, he did this because he didn't trust God to provide the protection that he needed. So he comes up with this strategy of marrying these various wives for himself, to provide for himself. He also did it for prestige. If a person had many wives, they were looked at as powerful. These were his trophy wives, if you will. He had, he had hundreds of trophy wives. And so these women also were for Solomon's prestige. It boosted his ego. It boosted his status. It displayed that he was a man of status in his day. Look how many wives I have. And they also were for his sexual companionship and pleasure. And so that's why Solomon had so many wives. Somebody said to me earlier, I might get in trouble for this statement. They said, well, the real, the real problem for Solomon was that, well, if he had 700 wives, I mean, he had 700 mother-in-laws. <laughs> I love my mother-in-law, by the way. I love you. <laughs> but yeah, let's continue look at, looking at his various marriages. It says, they were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. Solomon 
was in love. His heart was beginning to be drawn towards these women and their gods and the various idols that they worshiped. And God had warned his people not to intermarry. And sometimes this can be misinterpreted to look like God was against interracial marriage. That was not the case. That is not the case. He was saying, don't marry people uh, from, this, from this foreign nation such as Egypt because they're going to tempt you to worship their idols. It was more so about the God that they worshiped more so than the ethnicity or the skin that they were in that has been grossly misinterpreted at points in history. That's not what that's saying. Let's continue to look at Solomon's story. It says, he had 700 wives of royal birth, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. 300 concubines. Now, that's a word that we don't use much these days. So I want to explain that a little bit more. What is a concubine? I want to share this, this, this quote from Professor. Okay. In the ancient Near East, it was acceptable for a married man to have a secondary wife or concubine. So as long as he had the resources to support a large family. Okay, so this was acceptable in the ancient Near East. Doesn't say it was acceptable by God, but it was acceptable in the ancient Near East. Apart from working in the home and providing sexual companionship, a major role of a concubine would be to produce children to increase the workforce in a household. So that's what a concubine was. And you might ask, well, why did God allow Solomon to have concubines. Why, why did he allow this kind of thing? Some things in the scriptures are descriptive, and other things in the scriptures are prescriptive. This is descriptive. The text is merely describing Solomon's life. God never prescribed this for Solomon. As a matter of fact, we saw what God prescribed. God said, don't take many wives for yourself. God's original design for marriage is a beautiful thing. It's not, it's not that. It's not what Solomon was experiencing. I want to look at God's original design for marriage. It says, but from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, not wives, his wife. And the two shall become one flesh, not the 1,000 shall become one flesh. The two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one. This is God's design for marriage that promotes human dignity. It's about love. It's about sacrifice. It's about oneness. It's about unity. This is God's original plan and God's original design for marriage. And Solomon has missed it by a mile. And dare I say, he has missed it by a thousand miles. He's missed it by a mile. Let's continue to look at Solomon's journey. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. Just like God say, said it was going to happen. 
His wives turned his heart after other gods. And as his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, his God, as the heart of David, his father had been. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, his God, as the heart of David, his father had been. The influencer is getting influenced. Solomon was the influencer. I'm gonna, I'm gonna marry a, a wife from this nation and a wife from that nation and I'm gonna manipulate it in such a way that I benefit from it and these women exist for my, my power, my protection, my pleasure, my prestige. I'm the manipulator, I'm the user. Well, now the user is getting used. And the, the divided heart is now starting to spiral into outright evil. Let's look at the next passage. It says, so Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. Solomon built, built a temple to God, to Yahweh, but he also built a temple to Moloch, as we mentioned earlier in this series. That, at that, that um, worship site, child sacrifice took place. So he's divided in his loyalty, and now that division in his heart has spiraled into outright evil. The user is being used. The influencer is being influenced. And here's what we know about lust. Lust makes you think that you are the master pulling the strings. Solomon was pulling the strings. Lust makes you think that you are the master pulling the strings when really you are the puppet being controlled all along. Solomon is doing things that he could have never imagined himself doing. Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs. And in Proverbs, Solomon said, there is a way that seems right to a man. And in the end, that results in death. He talks about this death walk. There's a walk that a person can take where that, that walk seems right to that person. They think they're heading to somewhere that leads to life. He says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, that leads to death. And now Solomon has taken that death walk himself. What does that look like? The death walk looks like this. It looks like prevision. You get a vision of something. You're enticed by the lust of the eye. And then you give it permission. And then there's provision. And the final step is prevision. Prevision. You set your eyes on something. You're enticed. You come across something. And let's be honest, we live in a world where it's easier than ever to come across things that may pull you in. As we talk about pornography, a person used to have to go to a store and get a VHS or a DVD or a magazine or something. Now pornography is everywhere, online, through the various channels of technology. And maybe a person gets a prevision of that. They see something, they're enticed. And you can stop there. At the prevision stage, this is the stage where you still have the power. This is the stage where you still can say no without a lot of resistance. This is the prevision. But the next step 
It's the step of permission. This is when after lust knocks at your door, you let it in. I've always been interested about the the analogy of the bull in, in the china cabinet. You know, a bull in a china cabinet is gonna do what a bull in a china cabinet does. But I've always wondered who let the bull in the china cabinet? Why would you let a bull in the china cabinet, once you open that door and let the bull in the china cabinet, the bull is going to do what bulls do. It's gonna be glass everywhere. So that's what happens at the step of permission. You open the door, you let the bull in the china cabinet, and the bull is just going to do what the bull does. The next step is the step of provision. This is what addiction looks like. This is when you start providing for that thing. You're setting aside money. You're setting aside time to feed this thing. You're making provision for it. You're, you're a long way from just the prevision now. Now you're making provision for it. And this next step is the step that you don't want to take because it's sometimes, sometimes this can be the step of no return. It's the step of perversion. This is when you're doing things you never thought you could do. This is when you are completely out of control of the situation. This is the step of perversion. And people don't always come back from this step. There are more people at that step than we'd like to know. Once you look at this, child pornography is one of the fastest growing businesses, if we can call it that, online. And the content is becoming much worse. Child pornography. It's one of the fastest growing businesses online, and the content is becoming much worse. My guess is a person doesn't start there. That's just my guess. My guess is there's a a gradual stepping before you get to that place of, of that. But obviously, a lot of people, a lot of people are there. I just want to... I want to pray for the person who is an abuser. I want to pray for the abuser, for the person who is hurting other people, touching other people, kids. I want to pray for you. One, I do want to pray that you turn from your wickedness and turn to life. I really hope you do that. But secondly, I want to pray that you get caught. I want to pray that you are held accountable to the fullest extent of the law. I want to pray that you can stop hurting people and and, and maybe you think you're getting away with it and so maybe you don't get held accountable here but God sees it. And you will be held accountable by your creator. You will. Let's continue to look at Solomon's story. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. 
This is no small matter. God is tearing the kingdom away from Solomon. Enough is enough. This is loving discipline. The scripture says, says that God disciplines those who he loves. And God loves us enough to tell us to stop. He loves you enough to tell you to stop. God loves you enough to break you. He does. He loves you enough to break you. God might break you at the permission stage so that you don't fall into that perversion stage. He loves you enough to stop you right there and say enough is enough because he loves you. And he's telling Solomon, 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 enough is enough. And he loves us enough to confront us in the same way. Now, I want to differentiate the voice of godly discipline and godly love and discipline. I want to differentiate that voice from the voice of shame. Because the voice of shame is different. God's voice is the voice of love and discipline. But Satan's voice is that voice of shame. And my prayers, I've been praying about this message this week. I do not want this to be a slap you across the head message, but it also can't be a pat you on the back message because God loves you too much for you to be stuck. But the voice of shame is different. The, the, the voice of shame tells you that you are what you did. The voice of shame wants to humiliate you, and that's not what God wants to do. In 19th century England, there was, there was a shaming ritual called the Skimmington Ride. This is a true story. 19th century England, the Skimmington Ride. And with the Skimmington Ride, individuals would show up to a person's house after they had been accused of some kind of sexual immorality. True story. They would bang on their windows, bang on their doors, get pots and pans and make loud noises outside of their house. And they would drag them out of their house and they would tie them to a donkey and ride them through the city in a parade and shame them and ridicule them as a way to shame them and to discourage their behavior in anyone who watched. Some of you might feel like you've been through your own version of the Skimmington ride. You might say, Terrence, I've tried to share these things and I got shamed. I tried to open up about my struggle and I got uninvited. I got looked at differently. I got treated weird. I don't want to go on the Skimmington ride. And none of us do. None of us want to go on that ride. None of us want to be shamed or uninvited. But the reality is there are certain battles that we can't win alone. And we have to bring the thing into the light. And shame can't live in the light. I love the way Brene Brown says it. She says, if you put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three ingredients to grow exponentially. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. If you put the same amount of shame in the Petri dish and douse it with empathy, it can't survive. It can't survive. Friends, you don't need to tell everybody everything but I pray that the God will provide somebody that you can tell everything.
because shame grows in the darkness. These various addictions and things of that nature, they grow in the darkness. Did we not see the statistics? The thing, the thing is real. But if we bring that into the light and we have companions that we walk with and grow with, that thing can't live. And my prayer for you in this church that nobody would go on a Skimmington ride, that you'd find safety to struggle and to heal and to struggle again and to heal again because that's the battle. We have some resources here. We talk about the Connect card every week. I really hope that you take advantage of that. That's a great opportunity to anonymously send in a prayer request. Maybe your, prayer, maybe your step today is, I need someone to pray for me. I have an addiction and I need help. Or maybe the prayer is, I've been hurt and I need, I need prayer. I need help believing that I'm worth something because somebody took that away from me. Or maybe you want to reach out in a very practical way and say, can you connect me to some resources? Can you connect me to some people that can help me and walk with me? We don't want you going through this alone. As we close, I just want to, just want to affirm you. I want to affirm you with God's word. Let's go to Genesis. And this is what God says about you. Forget what anybody else said about you. Or maybe forget even what you may say about yourself sometimes if that's negative. This is what God says about you, friend. I want to speak to the person who's struggling today in, in, in secrecy. I want, to, I, want, I want to speak to the person who's been hurt. This is what God says about you. He says, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals. And over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Friend, you are made in the image of God. You are a child of the king. You are royalty. You are absolute royalty. And sometimes you have to reintroduce yourself to yourself. Self, I am royalty. I'm a child of the king. I am made in the image of God with value. I have authority. That's what, that's what God was talking about in the text. He says, I'm going to give them authority over these various aspects of life. God has purpose for you. He has a reason that you are here and you are his. No one can take that away from you. A friend gave me a penny this week. Jane Black, she gave me this penny. This penny, I don't know if you can see it well, it's so small. It, it's, it's kind of beat up. I don't even know what year this is from. It's been ran over and beat up. She said, Terrence, this penny has been beat up, but this penny still has value. This penny has not lost its value. It still has all of this worth. And for you and I, we get beat up in this life. Things come against us, but those things cannot take our value. For the person who has been wounded, 
You have tremendous value. No one, and I mean no one, can take that away from you. And we might be beat up on this side of eternity. We get beat up. But one day, King Jesus is going to take this beat up penny and polish it, and it's going to shine like it never shined before. You can bank on that. I just want someone to know that you're not alone in that struggle. God is with you. He's restoring you. He's redeeming you. And you have not lost your value. Let's go before our king and pray. I just want to pray for you. Father God, we come to you in your mighty son's Jesus name. God, confessing that we need you, we have been beat up by life. The devil has tried to rob us of our dignity and our worth. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are struggling with shame. God, I pray that you would remind them of who they are. God, true freedom comes by understanding who we really are. God, I pray that over my brothers and sisters. I pray for those struggling with addiction. God, break them free from the chains of addiction. God, we lift up these and many other prayers to you. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.